Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Season one of Island Crime debuted recently with the story of Lisa Marie Young, a Nanaimo cold case. The podcast entitled Where Is Lisa is now one of the top two crime podcasts in the country. In the short period of time since I released the first episodes of season one, there has been a deluge of interest in Lisa's case. The city of Nanaimo is still haunted by the disappearance of 21-year-old Lisa Marie Young, who went missing over the Canada Day weekend in 2002. The case remains unsolved, but her story is gaining attention again thanks to a new true crime podcast. The person or persons responsible for what happened to Lisa Marie Young are sleeping a little less easily, I suspect. It's the start of summer 2020. The anniversary of Lisa Marie Young's disappearance is near. She is in my mind often, as is her mother, Joanne. The annual March for Justice for Lisa, which Joanne championed year after year, is just around the corner. March takes place amidst growing outrage over a number of violent incidents involving police and Indigenous people. There are increasing demands to address the kind of systemic racism which I believe was present in the investigation into Lisa Marie Young's case. And there is also a new campaign for Lisa. People are being asked to leave their porch lights on for her on the anniversary of the night she didn't come home. The lights are a sign of hope. I think of all those little lights flickering in the darkness. I think of Dawn and Joanne Young on that evening all those years ago, waiting for their daughter Lisa to return, and how their hope faded over the years. But now, finally, there are flickers of light. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Island Crime Season 1, Where is Lisa? This is Episode 7, A Witness and One That Got Away. I've been blown away by the response to this podcast so far. I've been overwhelmed with people coming forward with support and information about Lisa's disappearance. The Facebook advocacy group for Lisa now numbers in the thousands. Many people who live in Lisa's hometown are speaking out. They're calling for justice and sharing their memories of Lisa. A local detective tells me she has shared the podcast with an association of private investigators. I hear from someone who knew a police officer involved in the investigation. He tells me the police know who did it. They just never had the evidence to make the case. 
a man who heard the information from Dave in episode 5 about how Lisa's body was first disposed of in a well shares his expertise. He has knowledge of wells, and he points to a map of all wells in the area, new and old. And there are questions. In episode 4, Norm Pratt said a bag of ID was found while they were in the woods looking for Lisa. A listener asks, what became of that bag? The answer, Norm tells me, is that it was handed over to the police, but that nothing came of it. Lisa's story is reaching people, sparking memories and introspection. Here's listener and broadcaster Cam Moon. Great work on the first season of your podcast. You did an incredible job of telling this story. Plenty of interviews really helped shape the picture. I was drawn to it because I used to live in Nanaimo. I was there from 1995 to 98. You had said in the podcast that Lisa Marie wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Well, that's what my job was when I lived there. I did the sports and the play-by-play for the Nanaimo Clippers of the BC Hockey League on what was then CKG 1570, which is now 106.9 The Wolf and 102.3 The Wave. Lisa Marie would have been 14 to 16 while I was there. Did she listen to Clipper games? Did she come to some of the games? Did I see her at the rink? I couldn't help but think of those questions while I listened. It's an incredibly sad story. I really feel for the family. I hope something comes from this podcast and someone is brought to justice. I'm determined to follow up on everything. In this episode, you'll hear from two of the people who step forward with relevant and important information. When I begin researching Lisa's case, I want to hear from people who were out at the jungle that night. I'm also keen to hear more about what Dallas Holly knew. Dallas, you will recall, is the friend Lisa called for help while she was stuck in the car, unable to leave. Just after I begin publishing episodes, a woman steps up. She was working at the jungle that night, and she knew Dallas. He shared his story with her. I know who she is, and I'm confident in the legitimacy of her perspective. But she's asked that I not identify her, and I'm respecting that request. I've pretty much grown up in Nanaimo my whole life. My husband and I both went to school here, and um, I'm a teacher and a martial artist. And um, I... Used to work, I've worked many uh, waitressing jobs throughout my university time here in Nanaimo. And so I was at the jungle working the night that Lisa disappeared. I've never been inside the jungle. Can you tell me what it was like? What what was it like to be working there back then? It was a crazy time. It was kind of in the heyday of that place, I kind of think, that nightlife at that time was was it action-packed and crazy at times? There were, you know, wet t-shirt contests. There were uh, nights where there were dollar highballs and just, you know, tables full of drinks. And it was just, it was madness. But, um, you know, a lot of people knew each other. Again, uh, as slowly and in as much yep. uh, detail as you can recall, talk to me about specifically what you saw that night as it relates to Lisa's case. 
Sure, I'll do my best. So this was so long ago that my memory is patchy. I do think I have a pretty good memory for for certain things and um, particularly for conversations about that and that night because it's, of course, what happened quite vivid in my mind. Um, But, you know, I realized that some parts of what I remember are perhaps things that I've read. And so um, I'll do my best to kind of delineate between what I remember very clearly and what I'm not so (laughs) clear on. Um, So what I do remember very clearly was that at closing time, um, I was chatting with Dallas before he left because he was, feeling pretty good (laughs) he I remember him being a little bit intoxicated and uh, he was outside and he had one male friend with him and he was it was his birthday and he mentioned that and so I don't know why but that stuck in my mind I just remembered him at closing time outside and he was leaving and um, I did not see Lisa with him I don't remember seeing her in the club that night Um, but I do remember him leaving I do you remember the, the Jaguar? Uh, the guy in the Jag was um, kind of cruising by, and I'm not sure if he and Dallas had, at that point, like if he had already talked to him or what happened. I didn't really make any connection with that until later, when Dallas told me more about that evening and what happened after the club. So you mentioned earlier that as someone who worked at the club, you, you know, you obviously knew some of the people who came and, and went there. Is, is that, yeah. how you, is that how you knew Dallas? No, actually. So I knew Dallas a few different ways. Um, so my boyfriend at the time was also a prize fighter. And so the, so you think you're tough, so you want to fight, I think is what they were called. Those fights were huge events at that time, and it was a bit of a social scene in and of itself to go to those fights and see people there. And so I had a little bit of insight into that community, having, you know, my boyfriend at the time. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. That's okay. All right, I'm going to stop you there for a second. I'm just going to... Yeah. My dog? So that is interesting, that whole um, world of prize fighting and, uh, you know, just seems to be a bit of a backdrop for this whole story. So that's that's how you came to know Dallas. Yeah, that's how I knew Dallas. Um, and also my, my good friend that I was living with, um, at that time, she worked with him at Thrifty's, I think as well. And, um, pretty charismatic. (laughs) So yeah, you're, yeah, I remembered him very well. So he's, you know, he's a, a, a character in the story, although of course he is deceased as well. So we, you know, I yeah. I can't talk to him. Can you? T- I mean, yeah. Uh, can, I I do want to ask you obviously about that conversation you had with him. Um, yeah. But but before that, can you just tell me a little bit more about him? What what was he like? What what kind of guy was he? So I didn't know him well, but I you know I would say he was an acquaintance, and so um, and I saw him you know quite a bit in the nightclub and that sort of thing, but. Um, he was a very, um, from what, in my experience, he was a really happy guy. He was very friendly, um, high energy, um, street smart, 
you know, good looking, um, charismatic guy. And he was pretty flirty sometimes, but he was always super kind. And I always remember that about him. Uh, he was always a gentleman. You know, I never had any bad experiences with Dallas. He was a super nice guy as far as I knew and could tell. So how is it you came to have a conversation with Dallas about what happened that night? It was either a few days up to maybe a week after Lisa's disappearance. Um, we knew about it. There was, in fact, a poster on the telephone pole right outside my house um, within a couple of days. And there was mention of this Jaguar and this fellow that had been driving it in the poster. Um, so we knew she was missing and it was something that we all knew about and it was on everybody's mind. Um, so we ran into Dallas, we were at the river, the Nanaimo River. And at the time, again, that was a bit of a social scene as well. Everyone would go down to the river. There's certain hot spots, <laughs> um, beautiful natural setting, but lots of people, you know, sunbathing, hanging out, some people drinking and so on and, and, um, just enjoying the place and cooling off in the summer. So my friend and I were there uh, for a swim in the in the daytime, and there Dallas was there too, and we ran into him, and he, you know, climbed up on the rocks to kind of chat with us and say hi, and then he, you know, somehow this conversation came up about Lisa, and then he told us that he had been hanging out with her that night, and this was the first time I had seen him since, you know, saying goodbye at the end of the night. <laughs> on his birthday so I had no idea and so he proceeded to tell us everything that he knew of from that night and um he seemed uh in good spirits uh but you know he also seemed like he maybe had been partying I don't really know um you know for a few days perhaps hard to say uh, but um he, he seemed a little bit exhausted. He did mention that he had been questioned for, I can't remember, like nine hours or something like that. Um, and that was within days of us kind of running into him. And he did mention, um, yeah, so I was the last person to talk to her. And so he, I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah. Some of it is patchy. Um, so he said that um, at some point in the night, and I'm not sure if it was right after the jungle or, or not, but he was out partying. It was his birthday. And he had gone to a couple house parties and that Lisa was with them um, at least at the first party. So they went from the jungle. My understanding of what he said was they went from the jungle to a party out in somewhere like Cedar, the south end of Nanaimo somewhere is what I thought he said. Um, and then they went to a second party somewhere in the Quarterway Pub area, which is um, kind of close proximity to Bowen Road. Um, that's my recollection of what he said. And he said that Lisa was with them um, at some point in the night at this first party. Now, I'm not sure if they got together before that and the guy in the bed drove them there or if they met up at that party. That part I'm not so sure of. But he did mention that this guy in the drag, and it was a burgundy drag wire, um, offered to drive them around, like from party to party type thing. 
And he said, well, of course, you know, he said, yeah, this guy seemed like he was um, somewhat sober and he offered to drive them. So they agreed and that was okay. And But I did not get the impression that Dallas was the guy. So he never used his name or anything like that. Um, and I read later that there was some question of that, but that was not my impression at all. And then he mentioned that, so they went to this first party, and he said that, yes, you know, he said, yeah, the guy was hitting on Lisa, but, you know, of course, so was I, kind of thing. Um, and uh, just innocent flirting or whatever is kind of the impression I got. And then he said they went from that party out in the South End to a second party. And he mentioned that the second party, um, there was a barbecue and that Lisa was a vegetarian and that this guy in the drive had offered to drive her to Subway specifically um, to get something because she obviously wasn't going to eat any of the meat because she was a vegetarian. And so... That, I think he said that was around, I don't know, three in the morning or something like that. And then after that, the guy took her in the drag and to go to subway, but then she ended up phoning Dallas and saying, uh, the guy won't let me leave. He's creeping me out. And he, Dallas said, and she mentioned that they were in a driveway somewhere on Bowen Road, but she didn't really know exactly where. And that's all I really know. And then, and then Dallas mentioned that she, after that, texted him as well. And in that text, she said, they won't let me leave. And that's all I really know. And he said that he was too wasted and he was with other people. I don't know who, but he said, yeah, we were too wasted to really do anything about it, to go anywhere. And that... He told her to just get out of the car and just call a cab, and that was the last that he heard from her. Yeah. Wow. So here, here you are talking to him, and this is just you know a week or days after the fact. Did you get any sense uh, at all that there was there were things he wasn't saying, or that he was, you know? That's that's completely my gut yep. <laughs> feeling. It's nothing factual at all. My instinct told me that yes, there was something he wasn't saying, and I don't know what. Um, you know, my my guess was perhaps there was some drug use going on. I just felt like there was something. Some things didn't make sense. I don't know. It's just very strange. Very strange to me. You said he he seemed uh, at that point as if he'd been maybe not getting much sleep or um, partying or whatever. But he did tell you that he had been questioned at length by the police. Is that right? He did. He did. Yeah. He said he was. They had questioned him, and he had been in the station or wherever the questioning happened they took him in there and they didn't let him leave for a long time and he said they asked him the same things over and over and over one of the things that i just was never clear on was um to what extent people at the the jungle were um talked to after uh this all happened and also what was being said 
you know, amongst staff. So can you shed any light on, on those things? I wasn't questioned and no one ever mentioned that they were questioned, but I can't say that they weren't, but you know, there was definitely not a police presence that I know of at the jungle for, you know, talking to anybody, although maybe that happened to other people and not to myself. I don't really know. This all happened a, a very long time ago, but as someone who, you know, is part of this community, can you reflect at all on what uh, what it means for you and for the community that there has been no resolution to this case? I have sleepless nights over it. I sometimes think about it and start reading things and I can't sleep at night. I feel it's, it's terrible. It's justice just doesn't happen and it's not right. You know, when you think back on that conversation with Dallas by the river, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because I can't talk to him. Um, I'm so uh, grateful that you're, you're relaying this information. Is there anything, any impression, anything that just, when you think back on that memory, anything that stands out to you about that conversation now? At the time, I was surprised at how maybe, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say nonchalant, but I was kind of surprised at how lighthearted Dallas seemed to be about the whole thing. Um, But at the same time, I know that people react to trauma in very different ways, and that could be normal for some people and a coping mechanism, you know. Um, I can't help but think that Dallas probably felt some deep sense of guilt, you know, no matter what happened. I always thought about Dallas, and I always thought that he was a kind guy, and I felt like he was being genuine about what he said, but then I felt that there was maybe things that he wasn't saying, but that's all I could really, you know, that's all that I could really say, because I didn't really know anything except for what he said. So that interview answered a few questions, and raised more as well. I get a better sense of the club scene cheap drinks, the wet t-shirt contest, paint a clearer picture in my mind of that period. Dallas, too, is taking shape as a character for me. I can almost picture him on the river's edge that day. The fatigue, the guilt, and perhaps there's a lingering doubt as to whether he was holding back some piece of information. A few days after that interview, I get a call there was something she was holding back. Uh, after we spoke, um, you you called me back to say that there was something else Dallas had said that day, all those years ago, something that you held back. What did he say? Well, I have to explain that I was reluctant to say this because um, I think that uh, as people, you know, we, we're kind of reluctant to say anything that might reflect negatively on someone that's passed away. And so I struggled with it quite a bit, even though I think it's very important. So that's why I phoned back. He said, in the context of telling us what happened to Lisa that night or what he knew of what happened, he said that jokingly, I did it and I buried her under my porch. 
and um, I was shocked. I didn't really know what to think of that, and it just always sat so uneasy with me. Um, I think I rationalized it in terms of, you know, like I said before, people deal with trauma in different ways, and um, for some people, maybe that's that's normal to kind of uh, make a joke or or seem kind of nonchalant about something that's really serious but yeah it was just so strange previously when you talked about Dallas sort of talked about him being a kind of charismatic energetic fun guy and and he is of course deceased can you just you know talk to me about you know why you thought it was important to call me back and and describe this moment, which frankly doesn't really cast him in a positive light. I think any information that can come out could be helpful. And uh, I just, yeah, I think that there's power in the truth. And part of me was kind of scared. Part of me was reluctant to talk about that. But ultimately, I think... I struggled with it and realized that I it's Lisa's memory is what needs to be honored. And so if I could, you know, contribute something that will help to bring her home and solve this, then I have to do it. I wonder why the police didn't interview this woman. Surely her witnessing two of the last people known to have been with Lisa that night is relevant. And finally, there's that mention that the red jag guy is flirting with Lisa. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. The next voice you'll hear is of a young woman who is coming forward with her own experience. She chose not to work in the club scene back then out of concern that it was too seedy, too dangerous. I'm also protecting her identity. She is fearful of speaking out. And yet, she may hold a key to unlocking a part of this story. It's summer, but January has set in. It's cool and raining as I head out onto the highway once again. The interview I'm about to do will be difficult. And there's a lot at stake. As I drive down an especially steep, winding stretch of highway, rain pelting on the windshield, I become aware of a dark-colored SUV following a little too closely behind me. I check my rearview mirror. Still there. Still too close. Since the podcast has been published, I have moments where I worry about my own safety. And this is one of them. There are people who would prefer Lisa's story fade into the darkness. So I'm being careful. My guard is up. And even in the rain, I take comfort in the beauty of the West Coast Island around me. As I approach my destination, the rain lightens a little, and two giant eagles soar overhead. 
characters. After the first few episodes dropped, I began seeing some reaction from women which had a similar theme. I could have been Lisa. These are mostly from women who think back on their own youth and recall encounters that could have gone very badly. Today, I'm driving across the island to meet one of these women, a woman whose story could help shed some light on Lisa's case. This woman first reached out to me a few weeks after the podcast aired. I reached out to you, Laura, asking if you were a reporter. Me. I'm the host and producer of Where is Lisa? Season 1 of Island Crime. What's up? And I responded in confidence knowing it was you. I am an island resident that knew the And one night I remember ending up alone at his place as he didn't live very far. Why I went there, I don't know, but it wasn't long before he had me in his bathroom offering me a clear bottle of GHB and trying to have sex. I was super uncomfortable and wanted to leave, but he was extremely pushy and kept grabbing me all over, telling me it was okay. I feel like he lured me there knowing I was out of foster care and had no family here. I was so young and naive, and my body shakes when I think of Lisa and write this. I believe things could have turned out very different that night. I could have been Lisa. I prefer my sources not to be anonymous. The decision to keep this woman's name confidential is not one I take lightly. But again, I'm confident she is who she says she is. And I believe her when she tells me that she is fearful. I believe her story. And I see a public interest in having her story told. The day I drive to meet her, she's staying with friends. She needs to be away from her family to do this, and she needs the support of those close friends. When she steps out of the house to come and meet me, I catch my breath. This woman looks like Lisa. She is a petite brunette. She's dressed like many young women on the island, a large, comfy plaid shirt over leggings and flats. She gets into my vehicle as the rain continues to fall on the roof. So I am an island resident. I've lived on Vancouver Island almost my entire life. I am a mother and um, I'm just actually 10 days older than Lisa Marie. Can you just um, sort of walk yourself back in time for me and talk to me about your life then? What was going on in your life? I graduated from school in 99 and about 2000, I ended up renting a, uh, a house with two of my longtime girlfriends. And while well, we were young, we were wild. We were having a lot of fun. And um, when I turned 19, we would frequent, you know, the, the press room, the the grizzly bar, the the palace, the jungle, all those bars on this trip. And it, it was very wild times. Um, things were crazy. And often we'd bring the party back home and, you know, we would just live free and, and have fun. And, um, you know, our house would be filled with people. A lot of the time we would be having a lot of ongoing you know, parties and stuff and people coming in and out and just being young and free. I've heard people describe the kind of club scene, party scene, 
social scene as being as being wild um and the idea of being young and free i think a lot of us can relate to that yeah um despite my graying hair i too had that experience mm-hmm. um but can you just like in a little more detail tell me about what you mean when you say kind of wild what what are we talking about well, we we like to go to raves. We like to have long weekends of parties and bring it home and, you know, just go with the flow. And I wasn't ready to go off to college yet. So, you know, we were just we were just uh, having fun partying and, you know, meeting and integrating with all these different people. The rave scene was pretty unique group of people. There was people from all walks of life. And, you know, growing up in District 69, there was a lot of, as we say, cliques, you know, so I found it was hard going to both schools in that district. But when I entered the rave scene, people seemed to be much more accepting. And, and um, this ended up with quite a eclectic group of people, let's say. The rave scene, uh, there will be people listening who just don't know what that means. When the rave scene is what? Well, in the late 90s, it was still very underground. But we were definitely introduced to, you know, ecstasy and stuff like that. And uh, not always living with discretion you know, taking some risk, living a little bit more of a risky lifestyle, but still feeling safe in our circle in what we were doing at the time. But there's something about that time that you now look back on with some anxiety. I I don't know exactly how to say it, but you you, uh, emailed me after listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Can you just uh, slowly and in as much detail as you're comfortable with talk to me about what it is you experienced and well let's just start with that sure so uh, Friday night I received a phone call from a friend asking me if I had listened to a podcast regarding Lisa Marie we are both very aware of Lisa Marie's story not in full depth but we we know this story we see the posters and we've heard the rumors so instantly I I related to what she was talking about and I started straight away we we kind of go back and forth about different documentaries we're very into crime like shows and stuff like that so um I quickly jumped onto Spotify and started listening to the podcast and the first um the first segment was obviously about Lisa Marie's life and painting a picture of who she was so you know you instantly feel a little more connected to the story and her herself and then when I got a couple more um, episodes in, they described and that was a trigger, definitely. Um, something I, I didn't, I don't think about every day, but when this came up and I heard other details about this story, it definitely triggered me and hit me hard. You mentioned that you are close to Lisa Marie's age and you Uh, have been to some of those same places you're listening to the podcast what what was it that that triggered you or as you say triggered you uh in a very hard way 
Well, because I realized that um, I had been with I I knew him. I knew his family. And one night when we were all having a house party just down the road, we didn't live far from each other. He ended up at the house and I didn't really make anything of it, just going about the night. And somehow I ended up making my way back to his place alone. I don't know why, but it wasn't long before he did have me in his bathroom, pushing me up against the sink, the vanity, and he was offering me GHB. And at that time, I was still only maybe 19. I was pretty street savvy. I was pretty street smart. I, I knew about the underground life and I, I knew what GHB was and I knew what it potentially could have done to me and I refused. And he was very persistent and he kept grabbing my body and trying to persuade me to go farther. And I don't know what it was. I knew I had broken the golden rule, not going alone with somebody like that, you know, but somehow I managed to get out of the house and back to our place. And, you know, I just, uh, it never sat well with me. I knew it could have been a dangerous situation once I got through the doorway and realized what, what was going on. But for some reason I was able to leave and get back. I don't know if it was people knew I had gone there with him or, you know, somebody was reaching out or I had to be back, but I ended up leaving the building and going back to our place of residence at that time. What, what do you remember about leaving that place? And I, I guess if you could just, Paint me a little bit of a picture of, you know, the neighborhood, his place that just kind of take me there as much as you can. And again, as much as you're comfortable with. Yeah, so um, our place of residence was right downtown Parksville, and there was a couple um friends that would frequent the house that lived about in a four or five block radius, I'd say. And um uh, did not live far. It was a walking distance. And all I remember, I can't quite remember, I believe it was an apartment building because there's quite a few uh, like condo settings right around that area. And all I remember really of his house is going in and then to the left, there was the bathroom and almost getting shuffled right in there. So really leaving, it just all happened really fast and emotions were high. My adrenaline was going. I, I felt really cornered and alone in that moment. And it just kind of went blank. It was just self-preservation, get out of this situation, go back to my group of people where I know I'm safe. And you mentioned that in in that period when you're in the house alone with him, he's being persistent um can you do do you have any recollection of what was being said uh what what he was doing just groping me trying to pull at my clothes kissing me saying it's all right it's okay like i'll take you back soon kind of thing um 
I don't know, like I say, it just happened really fast, it seems. And it was almost 20 years ago now. So you kind of just try to put that stuff out of your mind. And honestly, I had a boyfriend at the time. So you know, the, the desire to divulge what had happened in the situation that I had put myself in was not at the forefront. It was kind of, okay, we escaped a, an awkward, serious situation. Let's just uh, continue on. You, you were in care at some point in your life. Yes. Is there any part of you that wonders if that's why or how you ended up in that situation or that you were targeted because of that. It definitely crosses my mind um, being a ward of the court, not having family, no brothers or sisters, simply, you know, a, a group of friends that came and went. Yeah, I believe perhaps he did lure me over there, knowing that I didn't have much of a web behind me. I have been told by other people that he, you know, if I met him, I would think he was quite charming. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, pretty suave kind of character. Had that nice haircut, was older, pretty established as we all kind of, you know, guessed. I want to just go back to like the period immediately after. You you have a boyfriend. This isn't something you want to like really get into, obviously. But, but what... What impact does that have on you as a young person at that point in your life? Well, I think I uh, I was quite reserved after that for a while. My relationship didn't work out. I moved away. And things were a little bit tough, but I just took it as that was just finding myself in the world. You made the decision to, you know, send me that first email and, you know, We've had a um, back and forth since then. What What is it uh, that made you think it was time? I just think that um, with you shedding new light to the story and having a personal experience that there's possibly other people out there that may have some information or a personal experience. I personally didn't know Lisa at the time, but I have very close friends that knew her personally. And um, I just uh, felt like it was, it was something that I needed to do to maybe help bring others forward and realize that this, this suave character that painted a picture of himself was nothing of the man that he was. If there's somebody listening right now who knows something, who maybe has been fearful of coming forward or, you know, who has compromised themselves in some way, what what do you want them to know? What do you want them to think about now? Um, I mean, it's just important. Think about if that was your daughter, your sister, your friend. If you had information or a situation that could potentially lead to solving this crime, this disappearance to give the family and the community closure. It's, I think it's an important thing to do. Do you feel like you have the support you need now? You've talked about this being triggering. Are you, are you, are you okay? I'm okay. I am. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of detail of my past, but 
it's just a small situation that I'm glad didn't turn into a fatal situation. I try to be transparent about my process. There is rightly a lot of mistrust about the media, and I struggle with the decision regarding this interview. This is just one perspective on an encounter that happened nearly 20 years ago. There are no corroborating witnesses, but I believe her story. I make efforts once again to speak with the man against whom these allegations have been made. I want to hear his side. I circle back to my contacts close to him. This is a man who's at the center of Lisa's story. And I'll say it once again. If you want to add your voice to this story, please do get in touch at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Ahead in episode eight, an interview I've been trying to get for almost nine months. I have recorded a lengthy interview with the RCMP, Canada's Mounted Police. You will finally get to hear from them. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Where is Lisa? Season one of Island Crime. Please do rate and review this podcast. I'm still quite new to the whole true crime podcast world, and those reviews really do help. It's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. Plus.